Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. So I'll be reading the scripture today. It's out of Nehemiah. Now I was the cupbearer to the king, and it came about in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artesis, that wine was before him, and I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And the letter of Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was with me. Then I came to the governors of the providences, provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Zenbalai, the Horonite, um, excuse me, Horonite, and Tobiah, the Amorite, the official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, and a few men were with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley of the gate of the direction of the dragon's well, and on the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, pool, but there were no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that no one, that we may no longer be a reproach. 
And I told them how the hand, by the hand of God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words, which had been spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they built their hands the good work. But when Sambalai the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, he will, therefore his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Thank you, Tim. That's a lot of scripture, isn't it? Oh, wow. So we're going to see um, through this, Nehemiah is about a 13-chapter book. Um, one of the interesting things is it comes upon Israel in a time and in a season of their community <clears throat> where they've rebuilt the temple. There's some sense of worship among the Israelites, but their community is in shambles. Right? Part of having a wall in the Old Testament meant that you could be sovereign as a people group. If you didn't have a wall, anything could come in, anything could go out, and you're really unable to protect yourself. So for those of you who missed our introduction last week, part of the application in Nehemiah, and part of the reason we're studying it right now, is um, there is biblical connections to how Nehemiah went and rebuilt a community and how re we rebuild the church. Um, today we're going to cover a few what I'll call principles of reconstruction. Principles of reconstruction. Um, starting in 111b, Nehemiah at this time where we find him in scripture was cupbearer to the king. So to give you a background on where he was at, that meant <clears throat> in ancient times, the king's food would be one of the ways to take him out, right? It would be one of the ways that if you wanted to lead a resurgence against the king, you could poison him. So the king would have a trusted advisor who would taste his food and who would taste his wine so that he couldn't be poisoned by one of his enemies. In this story, Nehemiah is that guy. Talk about a divinely appointed position. We pick up the story in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, who is one of the most powerful men in the world. As kind of an aside, down by me, they actually have these car dealerships. Um, Toyota's the one by me, and they have a Toyota month. But we can see from the biblical data that Nissan was the first one to do that. <laughs> the months of Nissan, you guys know that month? It, um, just kidding. The month of Nisan was about four months after where we started in chapter one. Chapter one, we hear the story of Nehemiah getting word from Israel that, that the walls were broken down through one of his brethren. He starts praying, and then there's like this fade in the literature. Ancient Near East literature does stuff like this, where it starts in one spot, and there's, he'll say a prayer, and then we're four months later. But that tells you something about how Nehemiah spent those four months. Um, Nisan, would be early, Nisan would be early in the spring. And it's a tribute to Nehemiah's character that although he had likely never even been to Jerusalem, that the fact that when his community was broken down, it made him weep and pray. 
We pick up the story. It says, when wine was before Artaxerxes, Nehemiah took up the wine and gave it to the king. So here he is doing his job, very present before the royal court. And it says, now I had not been sad in his presence. So though we know Nehemiah is weeping and praying on the inside, he's still performing his job to the best of his abilities, right? He's not dragging through his workplace. He's not disrupting others. He's not taking egregious amounts of time off. He's still, as much as he's capable, performing what he can do in front of the king and in front of the royal court. But today is a little different. See, the king said to him, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? The king further says, this is nothing but sadness of heart. So my first point in the principles of reconstruction is Nehemiah has deep concern for the issue. Nehemiah has deep concern for the issue. This wasn't a news story that flashed by over his head for two minutes that he thought about and went about on his day kind of with that piece of information in his back pocket, but that really didn't affect him. This was something that deeply affected his person. In fact, it's said in the ancient Near East, both for sort of political reasons in that the kings wanted to enjoy their meals and enjoy their guests, and almost it almost sounds from the historians like there's a sense of like the kings wanting to not be manipulated by people being emotional in their presence, like moping around to try to get something from the king that you could actually get disciplined for being sad in front of the king. So this is kind of like a, at least a yellow flag moment, like, uh-oh, I've been found out. Um, Nehemiah, now, it's interesting to note regarding change and re regarding Nehemiah's deep care for change. And I can say that this is probably true, as true for us as it was for ancient Israel, Sometimes we avoid change until it's absolutely necessary, right? If there's a problem that's just bothering us, something that's nagging us, sometimes we can ignore it and let it go on and it continues. And it's not until it's absolutely horrible and we can't avoid it any longer that we actually engage it. You've probably heard sentiments about life phrase something like this, that sometimes people have to, quote, hit rock bottom until they start to change things, even outlandishly bad things in their life. Dave Ramsey said it like this, hitting bottom and hitting it hard was the worst thing that ever happened to me and the best thing that ever happened to me. Another Bible commentator said it this way, you will never build the walls until you are saddened by the ruins. You will never build the walls until you are saddened by the ruins. Sometimes when I think about or talk to people or read about people who are very successful, sometimes the depth and the magnitude of their pain or their hurtful life lessons goes well beyond the superficial reward of their success. They've, they've paid a price in a lot of ways, and sometimes they've paid a price in life circumstances that actually affected who they are, but that affecting who they are enabled them to become something that we now would view as highly successful. And sometimes that happens in our own life where we get to a place where we need to change who we are in order to start to turn the ship of our life or of our community.
One of the unique things about hitting rock bottom is that any of our destructive habits and behaviors are totally on display. If we've been able to get by with those things during a time of success, often we can hide them underneath great talent or ability, well-placed timing, being in the right place at the right time, being charming, but underneath have all these unhealthy habits and behaviors. But when things hit bottom, you can no longer brush by those things or leave them unchecked. It's at the bottom that you start to reevaluate your habits. Somebody said this about thoughts leading to habits. They said, watch your thoughts for they become words. Watch your words because they become actions. Watch your actions because they become habits. Watch your habits because they become character. And watch your character because your character becomes your destiny. If your thoughts on, are based on truth, you'll reap a healthy destiny. But if within your thoughts there's a sense of denial and not wanting to deal with issues, even if God allows you to keep going, you'll be playing out under the radar that denial, and there'll be eventually be a harder fall than if you dealt with it in the first place. In the case of Israel, they're in exile to begin with because they allowed false worship in their country. They had, they had a king who had married others who were outside of the nation of Israel who were idolaters. And through that process of his heart being dragged away, allowed Israel to start worshiping false gods, even erecting temples and statues to false gods. Have you ever found ruins in your own life based on worshiping a false god? Have you ever stopped long enough to assess what you could become under God compared to what you are today? If you're like Nehemiah, you've received word in some form or another that there is a better hope and a better way in part of your life. I know that because you're broken and imperfect and a sinner just like me. The good news is those spaces are places where God can work in our life and they're places where we can grow. Warren Bennis, the former dean of the USC Leadership Institute, which is one of the pioneer leadership training institutes in the country, said this, the leaders I met, whatever walk of life they're from, Whatever institutions they're presiding over always referred back to some failure or something that happened that was personally difficult or deeply traumatic. Something that made them feel desperate, like a sense of hitting bottom, as something they thought was almost a necessity for their success. It's as if that moment the iron entered their soul, and that moment created the resilience that they needed to lead. Nehemiah's months-long sense of sadness regarding the state of Israel and sense of disempowerment to do anything strikes me as a moment almost like that. His very next words after the king notices him appearing sad, it, his very next thought was, then I was very much afraid. 
Yeah, this, this could go wrong. <laughs> it's recorded, like I mentioned, that it's not good to be sad around the king. And Artaxerxes is actually not a very nice king. To put nice in perspective, Artaxerxes appears in what's in our Bible, the previous book. It was part of one scroll that was Ezra and Nehemiah. We break it into two. In this story, some of the servants of Artaxerxes write him a letter in previous chapters talking about the nation of Israel trying to rebuild the city. Artaxerxes answered that letter like this, I have made a decree regarding Israel and rebuilding the city. I've made a decree and a search has been made. It has been found that this city from old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made from it. Okay, that's the people that Nehemiah belongs to in the eyes of Artaxerxes. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. So this was a nation that competed with the king and flat out took his money, right? Therefore, Artaxerxes makes this decree that these men be made to cease and the city not be rebuilt. Israel was a potential competitor to Artaxerxes and his kingdom, right? And what he's about to find out is the guy most intimately connected with his health, the one who screens his food from murderers, actually belongs to this potentially seditious kingdom. Yeah, Nehemiah, be afraid. <laughs> be afraid. So he said to the king, now, Nehemiah makes a wise choice here, I feel. He start out, starts out humble and tactful. Let the king live forever, is his next words. Not a bad place to start. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and the gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah has a, an appeal from his heart. You see, you can't hide your heart from long, for long, even from people that you're not intimate with. It, it leaks out. Nehemiah, to his credit, expresses where he's from, talks a little about his grief and sadness. I can tell from his response that he obviously must have had a good grief class teacher like Jessica Wilkinson. It's apparent to me in Scripture. But we see that in that amount of sadness, he can't hide from the subject that's so deep on his heart, and he shares Real pain. He's not trying to hide it. The king said to him, what are you requesting? Right? Here's a little bit of a litmus test. What are you requesting? And Nehemiah says in, his, in the text, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Good place to start. You're talking to a powerful man who might not like what you're about to say and has power over your very life. It's a good thing to pray before you speak. Think about this, though. Nehemiah could have backed out of the process at any time. He could have passed on the opportunity to say anything, said, sorry, king, feeling a little under the weather today, no big deal. You ever got a little gun shy about sharing your faith at work or with friends? I mean, not only could Nehemiah lose his life, but I mean, there goes the keys to the best chariots. There goes his retirement. What are the neighbors going to say? Like, oh my gosh, disaster. 
But Nehemiah had a faith in God who put him in that position that God would show up. It says in Proverbs 21.1 that the Lord's, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is like a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Make no mistake, Artaxerxes sits on the temporal throne, but God Almighty sits on the eternal one. And Nehemiah said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, please send me to Judea, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. My second point is that Nehemiah is committed to change. Nehemiah is committed to the change. When the rubber meets the road, when the time is to back out, when it's easier to take the comfortable path, Nehemiah stays the course. I mean, any way, any way that the king decides out of this, Nehemiah's life is not going to get easier based on this decision. I mean, I, I could see three major things happening out of this. Number one, the king could leave him alive, but let him stay. But guess what? You're from this rogue nation that I don't trust. You probably lose your job. I mean, I don't know if you could transfer like inside the government and keep your benefits back in the day. Like, I don't know what happens if you're a cupbearer and you can't work anymore. But they probably didn't have employment redevelopment programs, if you know what I mean. <laughs> The second thing that could happen is the king could maybe outright kill him. Okay, mind you, only uncomfortable for a little amount of time, but extraordinarily uncomfortable, if you know what I mean. Or the third option, the king could send him to a destroyed city with evil enemies around him, no wall to protect him, to do hard labor with your bare hands until you're safe enough to sleep at night. None of those options strike me as very comfortable. Nehemiah is very committed to seeing this change through. But he's resilient. Right? One of the things that we know about life is the longer we live, the more often we'll have to reach into a wellspring of resilience. Of course, it's easy to say that resilience is a choice, but what prevents us from making that choice is fear that in doing, we would somehow experience more loss. Or the feeling that grief and resilience are a zero-sum proposition. In fact, they can coexist, both grief and resilience, if we allow them to. See, resilience isn't about overcoming grief. In fact, it's about adapting in the face of adversity, trauma, threats, or Sources of stress. I define in even simpler terms, resilience is the ability to grieve without turning your grief into regret. Verse 6, it says, The king gives an answer with the queen sitting beside him. Read into that. She may be part of the voice of wisdom in this. King asks again, litmus test, How long will you be gone? When will you return? What's your plan? Are you, are you planning to go off and build this wall and come back? Are you asking for a leave? Or do you want to be my servant anymore? What's ne you know, what are you thinking, Nehemiah? Where are you at with this? How committed are you to this change? Nehemiah said, It pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, 
If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I, will, what I asked of him. Okay, think about this. God put Israel in exile for their misbehavior and worship of false gods. He let their walls fall apart until they could come to worship him. And then God Almighty said, you know what, in my timing, I'm going to change the king's heart. Not only is he going to send you back, he's going to send you with letters, with protection, with the best building materials that the largest kingdom around could possibly muster. Oh, and by this, by the way, you get, it's also for the house Nehemiah gets. So you get a custom-built wood house out of the little deal. Like, not a bad job, Nehemiah. See, but for Nehemiah to get to his place of faith to even ask for that, he had to walk through those months of prayer and sadness and loss. He had to come to realize that what he gains by stepping out in faith would be far greater than sitting in that safe space of loss, even with all the accoutrements of modern living. The next part of this, Nehemiah inspects Jerusalem's walls. My third point is that Nehemiah does a realistic assessment. He does a realistic assessment. It says in verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. The king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. The king sent his army to make sure this project was going to be safe and on time. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Right? Israel has enemies. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. I arose in the night with a few men with me. So let me, let me back up a little bit and talk about some of the characters in the story. The Ammonites were a pagan people who worshipped the god Molech. God had commanded for the Israelites not to intermarry with them. But Solomon disobeyed and married Nama the Ammonite. And as God warned, he was drawn into idolatry. See, Molech was a fire god with the face of the calf and images of outstretched armed to receive babies that they unwanted children that they placed in his arms and lit a fire under him. Ancient abortion, right? That's how they did it. When Nahash the Ammonite was asked for terms of a treaty in a different part of the story, this is when the Ammonites are fighting Israel. Nahash proposed, as part of Israel's surrender, gouging out the right eye of each Israelite so that you can't fight behind a shield, right, with one eye. Making the men of Israel effectively neutered for battle. Amos 1.13 talks about the Ammonites as literally ripping open pregnant women in the territories they conquered. 
Okay, the, these are the dudes that Nehemiah is going to face, right? From the comfortable palace, like these are the enemies of Israel that we're going to stand up to. And that's just the Ammonites. The guy he's with, Sanballat, later becomes the instigator in the group of them. So this, the dude he's with is even more malicious than the group that we're talking about. That's what Nehemiah is going to face. We know a little less about the Horonites in terms of their history, but this guy Sanballat, even when the others give up, you'll see later in pursuing Nehemiah's death, he keeps on it. These were brutal foes of Israel and of our God. The point here, one of the points is that ministry can be dangerous. We don't maybe live with that same kind of danger in our community. But there's, there's rumblings of people who are unhappy with our church and or our God. I mean, in our neighborhood, we got Antifa not far from us. There's folks with mental health who we want to help, but then can sometimes misunderstand our help or where we're coming from. Maybe most dangerous of all, I know that even in our community, if you get Awana's budget wrong, like, watch out. <laughs> like, you'll be ducking behind corners, all the lights be on at church, looking behind doors, like, things could go south in ministry, just saying. If our electric bill is high this month, you'll know why. But in this story, God took things that were dangerous, and he led the community through them. God took an e that evil empire that oppressed Israel and used their resources to lead Israel's march back into their community and their rebuilding. He even gave them provision for the, and protection for their passage and for their resurgence. It says in verse 12, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah isn't sharing his plan yet. He's still in the assessment phase. There was no animal with me but the one I rode on, and I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. He's taking a detailed look. What do I need? What kind of materials do I need? What kind of team do I need? What kind of labor do I need? Then he went to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. The overpasses are broken down, the archways, the walkways, the things you would protect the city for, with. Then I went up by night to the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. He's doing an inspection. In ancient Hebrew, there's a word for that kind of inspection. It's diagnostic. No, I'm just kidding. But we do see from that the need for realistic assessment. That when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and rides about the city, he doesn't immediately start putting bricks in the wall. He takes a clear assessment of what he needs and builds a plan. Nor does he run out and get everybody excited to start lifting bricks and randomly putting things together. That's a good way to get a poorly built wall. And to he would also raise the ire of his enemies. No, he puts together a plan and a timeline and a vision. He notes exactly what's to be done piece by piece. Some of it recognized in Scripture, makes an honest survey of the facts. And then my next point, Nehemiah builds a coalition. He builds a coalition. He said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned? 
Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that he had spoken to me, and said, rise up and let's build. In Nehemiah's assessment of the past, he was able to look at themes of where God provided and tell testimony in his own life of stories that enabled him to be here and lead the rebuilding. It's interesting in church, oftentimes there's a variety of perspectives on how to move forward with any endeavor. I mean, it's been said, for example, in a church full of 50 people, you might have 75 opinions on how to get that done. How does that work? In a church, though, there is a healthy balance of wanting to be in a place where gifts can be used, but also just to be kind of a hands-on deck and being part of a process and ultimately a vision. Nehemiah knows that ultimate success lies in everyone working together for the good of the kingdom, that in working together and putting aside some of their personal preferences, we will have the best outcomes for all. And the people prepared for the work. Verse 19 says, When Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab, now they got three, they jeered at us and despised us. What is this thing that you're doing? Why are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, and you will have no portion, right, or claim in Jerusalem. We're going to have our space in our community, and it's going to be a bright spot for God. Next, my next point is that Nehemiah has a zealous faith. Nehemiah has a zealous faith. Through all these turns of events, he's had to learn to realize, like, I couldn't have made all this happen by myself. But that God, as he witnessed in this part of Scripture, has his hand on this work. That he's working through this process, aligning things, giving us truth, building a team, leading this forward, giving provision in a way for his ultimate glory. God is the one who gives us all of our victories, but he is especially interested in the spiritual ones. There will be those in our community, as we build the kingdom of God, who challenge our right to establish God things amidst the secular world. There may be those who jeer and accost us. There may be those who poke at the plan. But Nehemiah denounces their claims to anything above God's glory and goes about building the wall regardless. In light of all this, how can we live out our life learning from Nehemiah and put some of his principles in play in our own lives and community? A couple things we can do is we can, we can stay prepared. We can stay prepared. Knowing that in our community, we're developing a plan through summits on how to deal with the rebuilding process. That there's coalitions of people working right now on different teams, a business team, a transition team, a Sunday school team, 
in order to rebuild our walls that we can eventually have our walls of non-redevelopment established in our community. We can look at possibilities in our own lives and in our community at areas we may have deviated from God's highest and that we'll need a sense of resilience and repentance for God to have his glory restored in us on a personal and on a corporate level. When things were kind of going all right, we didn't have to look at all that. But maybe it's God's grace sometimes if he lets things get a little unraveled so that we might look to him for the utmost glory. We can ask him, where in our faith do we need help rebuilding our walls? Who's going to help us with this rebuilding? The last point, we can live in radical faith. In radical faith. God has a plan for us. He has sustained this community for decades. And where God guides, he provides. In looking forward to the future, God's got a plan for every single person in his seat today, and even the ones standing up and walking around. God has his hands on your life. He's calling you to put your treasure in him, to seek him for his glory, knowing it's the most valuable treasure you'll find. So as I close, I'm going to lift these things up to us. That we can see the plan, build a coalition, have zealous faith, and be resilient in change. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for your word that it gives us light and it gives us direction, that we can seek you for clarity, for compassion, for a how-to when things go wrong, that you've left principles for us and how to guide our life and how to cultivate our hearts to be more like you. Lord, in this season, we ask for a fresh outpouring of your gospel in our life, that we would see our desperate need for you, our Savior, that you would be alive to us, both as an eternal life that we're learning to live in, but in a daily expression of faith in, in how we go to work and how we interact with others and how we come to church and in how we love you. Lord, we ask for an extra outpouring of our, your grace and discernment as we go over the summit materials, Lord, that we could learn to coalesce over this assessment, to build a plan and move forward, to be aligned as a community and to seek the best for all. Jesus, we lift these things up to you in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit alliancebible.church.